Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome back to Still Watching, the television podcast from Vanity Fair. We cover entire seasons of the hottest shows on TV, and right now we are diving deep into House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series on HBO. I'm Josh Wiggler, and here to discuss House of the Dragon Episode 9, here to stage a podcast coup with me, it is Richard Lawson. Richard. A soft coup. Don't worry. A soft coup. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be hanging anybody or... No. You know, I might bust a dragon through the floor of something, but that's it. Totally And that wasn't possible. really even part of the coup, so. Not really. That's like sort of like the appropriate response to the coup, I think, to <laughs> yeah, some degree. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually Eve Best quitting the show. That's how she left set. She was like, I've had enough. And I home. wish that I could say that that is like the last that we will see of Raina Targaryen. Not because <laughs> I want her to leave the show. I love the character. She has more to do, for sure. Uh, but gosh, what an exit that would be. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a way to make a big move at Tribal. To, to, yes. to keep to keep belaboring our survivor thing, uh, uh-huh. that was that was the ultimate. I have two immunity idols. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, it was like the idol nullifier. I feel like it's like one of those yeah. really unexpected twists. Uh, yeah. that, like no one prepared that. Like they had everything about Aegon's coronation prepared, but these fools, uh, they had it at the dragon pit. You got to make sure that the dragons are being watched. Yeah. It's very important that you have monitored uh, a monitored situation on the dragons if you're hosting your your very controversial coronation in the literal dragon pit. And maybe make sure you absolutely know where each of the dragon riders is. It's <laughs> <laughs> also important. Very important. So we are talking about episode nine. It is the green council. And of course, we know that green is that high tower color. Um, no surprise here. And yet still shocking, Richard, that... After eight episodes of buildup uh, of wondering, like, is this going to boil over into some sort of civil war type of situation? The death of King Viserys absolutely paves the way for the lid to be blown off of this slow simmering conflict. Mm -hmm. 20 years in the making. We are officially in it now, folks. Potentially even more than 20 years, because I, I think we'll have to see what next episode holds, because Rhaenyra is not in this episode. And so... From what we know from this episode, it kind of seems like Rhaenys starts the Civil War. I mean, obviously, right. the, going over the succession, that is the, obviously the key to it. But it seems that Rhaenys is the first person to respond in force, really. Yes. So she, I mean, she is kind of, uh, yeah, the, the first representative of potentially Rhaenyra's side of the storyline 
who is uh, who's going to have eyes on this uh, this uh, highway robbery, this high towerway robbery of the Iron Throne. And her response is obviously seismic, but perhaps appropriate given many of the ways in which this all rolls out. It's a really tense episode of the show for me, uh, even having read Fire and Blood, the book on which this is based and having you know, some some good ideas of, of how this is going to go down. There's some swerves here for sure, some ways in which the show zigged where the book zagged, some embellishments here and there, different like stagings of some important scenes like the small council scene isn't in the small council in the book. There's a lot more of a lid kept on Viserys' death in the book than there is on the show. I think like Viserys is left to rot in his chamber for something like a week. Uh, mm-hmm. In the book, before they uh, before they really get into it, uh, before they start announcing what has happened to him, the show takes a little bit of a different path uh, and adds a couple of things. There's one thing in particular in this episode. I was like, I don't think we needed that at all. Um, looking at Laris Strong right now, uh, but a lot that is happening. <laughs> in What this, part of Laris Strong are you looking at, though? That's I'm not looking at anything. <laughs> I'm doing I'm everything. I'm wearing my shoes. Look, yeah, but I'm wearing socks and shoes right now. By the way, just in case. Well, I'm wearing sandals, but I am Uh-oh. also wearing socks. So, oh, okay. uh, you know. so, so practical and fashionable. That's, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's finally starting to pay off here uh, as uh, the socks and sandals combo is showing up. What did you think of this one, Richard? I thought it was exciting. You know, I think there were um, genuinely things in this episode I didn't expect to see, you know, or expect to happen. Um, I love an episode that lets an actor like Eve Best uh, just go for it and she's so good um as Rainus. and um i think you know i think this show overall has been pretty good about centering women in the story i mean and you also see that evidence by the fact that uh claire kilner directed this episode was written by sarah hess you have women behind the camera in two major positions uh and then you close the episode with a a character who was you know important but maybe she was an interesting supporting figure all of a sudden assert herself and uh, in grand fashion. And that, that was really exciting. And um, I genuinely don't know what happens next, which feels uh, great. Yeah. Uh, there's no Rhaenyra in this episode. This is the first House of the Dragon episode without both Viserys Targaryen and Rhaenyra Targaryen, one of whom will return to the show for sure. Uh, but these are two really important players in the narrative thus far who are absent from the episode. And so in addition to it being the Reynus Targaryen breakout episode, Richard, this is really Hightower City, right? You know, yeah. like we really get to see what King's Landing looks like when it's covered in green. Um, what did you think about that? For me, it felt like kind of a, a different vibe, but in a really exciting way. Well, yeah, Rhaenyra is off drinking Negroni Spagliato <laughs> yes. with Prosecco. With Prosecco. Um, if yeah. anyone's seen the amazing video of Emma Darcy saying what their favorite drink is if you I, haven't seen it go watch it i don't drink anymore richard but uh even now if i were to to get a drink negroni would be pretty far down on yeah. the list for me. <laughs> yeah oh same same yeah. um but emma darcy makes it sound good um yes i agree that it did feel different having the high tower ascendancy you know but what i think was a an interesting uh aspect of that was that aside from the fact that a target you know a platinum blonde targaryen incest prince is going to be put in the top position everything else you know with the high tower ascendancy and and the king's council that felt more like what we meet when we start game of thrones with the baratheons in power right you know that was they, we don't have these messianic psychos from across the sea ruling us uh we have like regular westerosi people who um uh, are not quite 
you know, they're not guided by profit and vision and all that and dragons and all that stuff. Um, yes, it was kind of a half like that. There were t- absolute Targaryens being installed into power here. But but yeah, I thought it was a, a, a interesting to see, like, would would the world of King's Landing or Westeros as a whole, like, is it it, it probably is better to have a more practical uh, governorship versus this kind of magic crazy one, um, even if they're using the magic crazy to get into power. Yeah, I thought this episode was really interesting in conversation with the same episode of Game of Thrones, uh, the, the first episode nine of GOT, where it's not a coronation scene that you're getting at the end of Baylor, but you are getting this really big, grand, kingly moment in Joffrey's decision to, you know, off with his head to Ned Stark. And here in House of the Dragon, it is a coronation, but there are these two big public kingly events and two different tacts are taken. With Joffrey, no mercy is shown. Uh, the Cobra Kai way uh, towards Ned Stark. And here at the end of this episode, with the queen who never was, who earlier in the episode is told by Allison, you should have been the queen. It should have been you. She shows what it looks like when mercy is rendered. Uh, and she chooses not to eviscerate these people with dragon fire. And I'm just thinking about the endings of those two different episodes and how they are both like they're parallel tracks, but they're very different choices that are made there. Mm-hmm. And neither uh, path, Richard, leads to peace. I can tell you, you know, like I, I, I just thought that that was really interesting. I kept waiting for there to be some sort of huge jaw dropping twist in episode nine in the Green Council uh, as per a Game of Thrones tradition. And I think if there was a twist, the twist is like, you know what? I'm not going to just bathe you in dragon fire. You're going to live right. with this choice and you're going to live to regret it. Yeah. And I think that her, that Ra- Rainus's choice, you know, it felt sort of righteous and uh, not quite good exactly, but, you know, at least not outright murderous, except that she did kill a lot of regular folks who live <laughs> who yeah. live in town. I mean, you have to imagine that dragon bursting through, swinging its tail everywhere. A lot of those townsfolk who were gathered to witness the coronation uh, did not survive. Um, and I think that this episode... Well, we don't care about them, right? Well, it's but, just yeah, small fault, I, Richard. I think the episode did do a good job, you know, in a way that even it didn't, that Game of Thrones didn't do, of being like, right, there is a whole teeming yes. city of people here. And yes, they're in rags and they live horribly, especially in Flea Bottom. It had me kind of wondering, like, what's the park slope of King's Landing? Like, does it exist? <laughs> like, you know... Stroller um, city, yeah. Yeah, but like, the streets it does of kind of matter that the people applaud it. You know, the, 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 the calculus was like, oh, I, I don't think that the people are going to want a female ruler, but we have to go with it because it's what Viserys wanted. And then things right. change. And you see this tentativeness with which Aegon, who's a drunk and a womanizer and doesn't really want to be and a rapist, uh, doesn't yes. really want to be um, doing this at all. And, and everyone's kind of nervously see, waiting to see what the crowd is going to do, how they're going to react. And they seem to like it. And Aegon seems to like it. And that seems to shore up some support. Which, like, we, I don't think we've seen an outright, like, rebellion from the, the hoi polloi on, the, on the show, these shows yet. But, like, that is something that people, I'm, I'm sure, in power would have to think about. And so, whereas I think it's fun in a narrative TV watchings had sense that Rainus did what she did. Was it smart? Because now, the people of King's Landing are probably not pro that side, based right. on what happened. And right. so is it better to, to establish this fear? And if you were going to do it, why not go all the way and just kill everyone else? You know? No half measures, Walter. Yeah. Right. You know, I think uh, that's a, it's a very interesting point. I think it's also really worth 
putting that pin in um, in what is the perspective of the of the people on the streets uh, of of King's Landing and how are they feeling about the ascendancy of Aegon Targaryen? How are they going to respond to Rhaenys' big move here? And how is that going to splash back on Rhaenyra, who may not have been a popular choice to begin with? I think all of these are really important questions to keep in mind as this show is clearly evolving into its next stage. Um, and whether or not we really get rooted in the perspective of the people of King's Landing, I certainly hope so at a certain point in time. We're not totally there yet, but I do agree that this episode, I think, did the best job of that since maybe was it episode four um, when Rainier and Damon are, are going out uh, for their memorable night out on the town. Um, a lot is changing here in House of the Dragon. Uh, a lot is happening here on the podcast is we're just going to have one more beyond this point. We have the season finale coming your way next week. We would love to get your feedback in anticipation of that. You can send it in still watching pod at gmail.com. That's still watching pod at gmail.com. We've got a good amount of feedback for this episode as well, which we'll get into deeper into the episode. But first, let's recap it. We'll do it scene by scene right after this quick commercial break. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, Richard, we are back. We are talking about the Green Council. It is directed by Claire Kilner. It is written by Sarah Hess. And it begins with um, a series of scenes that felt almost like um, like a promo uh, reel for me. Uh, like I could see the alternate world where this is like the season two teaser, Richard. We're going through King's Landing. We're going through the Red Keep. It's quiet. There's no activity. The throne room is empty. All of these rooms are empty. And just Ramin Jawadi's haunting piano keys are being tickled underneath it all. It's a dark night. It's torch lit. And then we are swallowed into the drama of Viserys Targaryen is dead uh, and yeah. how that is uh, going to be rippling out to everything else. A very haunting opening, I thought. Especially because you, you then start to think, oh, no, it's so bad that these people know this. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's so bad that this kid knows it, that this maid knows it. I mean, we, we kind of later find out that, you know, there are spies within the castle. So not everyone is innocent. But like, uh, yeah, this is dangerous information. Yeah. Uh, team spies, by the way. Let me just uh, say. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, generally look, speaking, like just cool, cool job, really cool job. But uh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it's it, working, you know, the, this all powerful ruling class. But like, well, there are some cracks in that if, if people who are hiding in the shadows can have a big effect on things. Yeah. Lara Strong is going to talk about the, 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 the web of spiders and the network they have weaved in here. And like, I kind of want to see, like, what's the SD6 of King's Landing? <laughs> right. like, I kind of I want to know. Like, I want some more, like, intentional in-universe wig work. Is uh, is that too much to ask for, Richard? I don't know. Are we going to meet House Rimbaldi next season? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. This whole thing is uh, an alias prequel. Uh, pretty happy about that. Um, so, Allison is going to, to hear the news uh, that Viserys has died. Um, she and Otto are going to be alone together. Uh, and she is going to reveal to Otto that... He, she was with him, uh, you know, moments before he passed away and that his last wish among his final words were for Aegon to be the king. Uh, she says, it's the truth. It was his last wish. It was his last words to me. And I was the only one to hear it. And now he is dead. So, Richard, this episode is really going to lean in on the idea of Alicent really fully believing, it seems like. Uh, this this you know miscommunicated bit of information that Viserys wants Aegon to sit on the throne and not Rhaenyra. Um, and I wondered how much you feel like is this her really authentically believing in that? Is this something that is uh, a little more desperate and confused than that? Uh, to pull in some of the feedback a little bit early, we had gotten this from Brianna who had written in and said I wanted to bring in a wrinkle from the last episode, Lord of the Tides. Regarding the last scene with Allison and Viserys, you mentioned that Allison may have confused Viserys' ramblings on Aegon to mean her son should be on the throne and that there's no malice but innocent confusion. But when she asks him, our son, he pointedly says no. So even if Allison assumes Viserys is rambling mad with the rest of his message or is confused about it in general since she doesn't know about the dream, she knows that she doesn't have the only Aegon in the realm. And who's to say Viserys isn't talking about Rhaenyra's Aegon? So my question to you after that, Richard, is do you feel like this episode bears out that Allison really authentically misinterpreted what Viserys had to say about Aegon in his final moments? Or is this like, is this a convenience for her? Or is she even lost in some measure of like the panic of the situation? Well, I think you could look at it a couple of ways. Like maybe Allison heard what she wanted to hear. Um but also, I think maybe it was an innocent mistake, A, because she doesn't know about this mythology that he was right. that I think he was referring to. And B, like, why wouldn't he be talking about his own son on what looked to be his deathbed? Why would he be referencing the, the first ever, you know, guy from however long ago? Um, so I think this was a genuinely innocent misunderstanding that uh, obviously is getting out of hand and leading to terrible things. But I, I don't know. I think Allison is more about just protecting the family and herself than she is about holding ultimate power. That's kind of her father's thing. I think maybe there's 40% of Allison that wants that power too. I'm not saying she's totally checked right. out of the game. Well, that's but what I, uh, Rainus is going to say. Like, you never thought about yourself on the Iron Throne? Allison can't right. really respond to that. She's like, eh, I thought about it. Well, like, well, of course. I mean, how could you not? You know, right. because m- maybe if she, maybe that is just viewed as simple safety. You know, like if I'm on top, then there, are, you know, I have, I'm that much less at risk or I'm more at risk. I don't know. So I think Allison continues to be a fascinating character because it's not really clear um, in a smart way, not in a lazy writing way. It's not really clear what she wants exactly. And I think that's because she's figuring it out as she goes. I think that that's probably the key for me 
is I'm I'm more clear on what she believes right now. I think that she believes that Viserys intended for Aegon to yeah. sit on the throne. I am still less clear on what it is she really wants. You know, like I think like those right. are two different things. And what does Allison actually want out of this situation? Probably would be to be like out of this situation, uh, to like not be in this situation, right. I think is the thing that she would want the most. Um, now that she is, I think you you break it down quite eloquently of like, maybe I'm on top so that I'm less at risk, but perhaps being on top puts me more at risk. There aren't a lot of great directions for her to go in. Well, right. And you th- you have to think about like, what is the conversation she had with teenage Aegon like the first time we met him was like, right. you have to take this seriously because like when she becomes queen, you we are all in danger. So she knows that too. So maybe, okay, by the, you know, somehow by the, the grace of the seven, my husband right before he died changed his mind, thus protecting us for one more tribal, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like right. we were, we're okay for the next round of this game. But look, these people are in a precarious position no matter what. And I think that's the poignancy of what this show has done. I think the most poignant thing this show has done so far is show these characters who are stuck both by choice and by circumstance, by chance in these positions like that glimmer of the a way out a way to just walk away it's not realistic for most of them but like that that it that it kind of hangs there in the distant periphery must be sort of sort of you know painfully tantalizing that like maybe there's a life where i just kind of like enjoy myself for once yeah uh, yeah when she talks about like you know viserys would have been happy to just be a country lord i feel like yeah. part of that is like and I would have been really happy to just stay in Old Town. That's uh, probably so. everyone in this group's fantasy, ultimately. I mean, maybe <laughs> not, not the really power, not the really yeah. power hungry people, but like a lot of the others are like, geez, so you're saying I could just be rich and ineffectual mm-hmm. somewhere like in a castle? That sounds nice. Yeah. Otto really does feel like he's now living his best life. Uh, oh, he's as we, thrilled. Yeah. As yeah. we go to the small council meeting where we're going to be for for a good chunk of time. And this was a really awaited uh, scene of like, how is this going to be? This information is how is it going to be meted out? And the people who are going to re- resist in this moment and how that's going to go. Uh, so this was a really exciting sequence for me, even as it was a bit different from from how the book goes. But it does feel to me like Otto is like from here on throughout this episode, he's like, his belt is like one notch looser, you know, like he's like really able to like stop holding in the ambition and just lay it all out on the table. He tells everybody, uh, so we've got some bad news, uh, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is Viserys is dead. The good news is he wants Aegon to succeed him. And so all of these secret schemes that we've been plotting, unbeknownst to everybody else, including Allison, we can just turn the key and activate all of that. So it seems like, these contingencies have been in place with at least a group of small council, Richard, that they were preparing for the day that Viserys died, that they would stage this coup one way or the other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was they had never accepted Rhaenyra, you know, and it was all just a waiting game and a plotting game and, and you know, kind of quietly getting people aligned with them. Um, and the tragedy of that is that Alicent, I think, genuinely didn't know that this was happening. She seems to, yeah, it seems to be that's the case, that Allison seems yeah. to be really upset that this has happened, uh, that that um, that Otto has made these moves, that he's ready to, like, he's identified the people on the City Watch who are loyal to Damon. Let's get rid of those people. 
um, let's, you know, uh, get to, to Dragonstone and give them the chance, but we're not really going to give them the chance and we'll probably just kill Rhaenyra and her entire family. Like, Alicent uh, would not have approved of any of this. She knows that Viserys would not have approved of any of this. And this is this is sideswiping her. This is, you know, she's already sort of in some measure of mourning. There's a shell-shocked quality about Alicent here. Even if she believes that her husband wanted authentically their son to be the ruler and she wants to honor that or whatever it is that she's, you know, wanting to do or choosing to do, she doesn't want it to be done in this, like, horrific, shadow schemey way. Uh, so she's sort of the first objector, like vocal objector in the room, but she's far from the last vocal objector in the room as poor Lord Lyman Beesbury is going to to die for speaking his mind. Yes. Yeah. Uh, at the hands of a increasingly erratic, rash Kristen, who I think is emerging as this fascinatingly broken character who yeah. is like. Like he got rejected by one girl like 15 years ago <laughs> and he's carried that a good long way like yeah. crazy. And I think, you know, that's just further like Allison is like, what situation am I in? You know, yeah. and she's realizing that like these men that she, you know, she knew that her father manipulated her into getting into Viserys good graces. But I think that she had let herself think, well, you know, like that was then this is now like, I think I'm respected here. I think I have genuine power here. I think Kristen is like a genuine um, trusty ally. And now she's like, no, all of these guys are crazy and all th they don't really think about me at all. I'm just a pawn that now is increasingly less valuable. Yeah, uh, she's just a player on the board, but she yeah. she feels like she has some pieces of her own. And I think that she thinks of Kristen. Maybe she thinks of Kristen in that way. I don't I don't quite know how she views him when she's going to talk to him later and send him out to King's Landing. Uh, you know, she is going to trade on the like, however you feel about me, you have to know how important this is. Um, you know, it feels like she is really leaning into that power dynamic of I helped you. I scratched your back. Time to scratch mine. Um, in any event, Kristen, yeah, he just is vibrating with all of this fury that has been collecting over these past few years. And it kind of feels like he's here in this moment where like he's going to have yet another opportunity to just off a person uh, and maybe get away with it. Uh, so some form of like murder truth comes out in Kristen Cole as uh, Lord Beesbury is the is the only person in the room up to this point who is saying that this is not right. Uh, Aegon is an imposter. Uh, people swore their oath to, to Rhaenyra. I'm an old man. I'm 76. Uh, I do not believe that this is what Viserys would have wanted, especially with his wife as his only witness. This is treason. Uh, and for the, the sheer crime of speaking the truth, Kristen uh, bashes Lord Beesbury's head into the table, one shots him. That's the end of Lyman Beesbury. The book has it uh, that there's no question that Lord Beesbury died at this moment and uh, uh, in, in this capacity of speaking the truth and, and, and dying for it. Um, but I think that the, there's a lot of questions about how it played out. There's some perspectives in the book that he gets locked up and just sent uh, sent to the dungeons. Um, there's another version where he has his throat slit in the room by Kristen Cole. Another really wild version where Kristen Cole just throws him out a window. Uh, so the show went a different route, but Lord Beesbury's days were numbered the moment he showed up on screen. And I was really curious to see how they were going to do this. Yeah, and this is sort of the head smash heard around the world. You know, this is right. the first death in this war. And uh, the 
the sort of small little, you know, pathetic tragedy of Beesbury is that like, no one's going to remember that, you know? Right. This yeah. won't be the, but it is, this is a huge deal that this happens. Yeah, blood has been spilled. Uh, and it's it's a big deal uh, at, for, for Harold Westerling, the Graham McTavish character, who has kind of just been the strong, silent type for so much of this show. Uh, he's going to speak his mind. He's going to kind of have a barrist in the bold kind of moment here where he pulls his sword out against Kristen. Kristen pulls his out in kind. You think that this might turn into like a full-on battle here in the small council chamber. And ultimately, it de-escalates to a point but Harold is going to quit on the spot. Um, so he's going to he was the Lord Commander of the of the King's Guard. He shall be Lord Commander no more. He's going to strip off his cloak and say, I recognize no authority but the king's. And until there is one, I have no place here. And he walks out of the room. But he's sort of leaving the window open. I could come the yeah. door open. I could come back if once you guys figure this out. I just don't want to be part of this part of, you know, this 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 interim thing. Uh, no, thank you. With him out of the room with uh, with Harold gone. There are uh, there are questions about next steps, uh, and this is where Otto is really saying, "Well, we're going to have to imprison Rhaenyra, and they're going to be given an opportunity to bend at the knee." And Allison says, "You know, they're not going to do it. Damon is never bending the knee to you. Uh, you're just planning on killing them off." Uh, and I was like, "Well, eh, you know, basically, yes, that's basically what I'm what I'm planning to do." Uh, so the stakes are established in this moment that this does not look good for the folks on Dragonstone who know nothing of this at this point in time. We've all been in a position where our father tells us to our face, I want to kill your friend from grade school. You know, mm -hmm. like it's just a yeah. thing that happens. Yeah. And you don't forget that. Uh, that really stuck with me. Uh, this is a pretty, pretty, pretty horrific <laughs> yeah. moment. Um, Helena, uh, we're going to get like the perspective of the, of the kids as they're going to find out that their father is gone. Helena has a really dramatic reaction. Uh, she is there with her with her children, uh, just, you know, hanging out with her kids when she gets the news that Viserys is gone. Uh, she has no idea where Aegon is either. Uh, she says something about a beast beneath the boards, uh, Richard. Uh, is, she, is she foretelling the arrival of, uh, of Rainey's on Dragon back at the end of this episode? Well, hadn't you mentioned a few weeks ago that she might have that thing? What was it? I forget the term. What the it term seem, was. It seems, like, uh, it seems like she's a Targaryen dreamer. Uh, it seems dreamer, like she is right, one yeah. of the Targaryens who does have that ability to 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 see some glimpse of the future. Right. Which, you know, then you kind of I start to wonder just from a, you know, TV writing perspective, like, OK, so is she just going to pop up on occasion and say something kind of creepy mystical? Or is that like that? Is, is Helena going to sort of enter this in a bigger way at some point? I don't know. I kind of like her as this just sort of she kind of floats in for a second, says something interesting and then floats away. But um, I don't know. Maybe they have bigker plans for her. Helena's read the book. She has the spoilers. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. uh, tre right. tread, tread lightly around Helena. Um, Eamon comes in. He He's catching wind of the news. And just the way that Eamon looks, this really seems like a man who's like, okay, time to do the thing I was born for. I'm ready to go to war. Let's do this. Born for and yet also not quite born for because, you know, he's he he he's like, OK, now my family is swinging into action. But like he wants to be the one that everyone is, you know, trying to install into power. Uh, and he's the not quite light there, of but, the second son. But I'm sure he has a plan for that, too. Yes, uh, we'll see. Um, so we're going to get into this um, to this moment where Allison and Otto are basically going to send their field agents out on this, uh, this mission to retrieve Aegon. No one knows where Aegon is. Aegon is missing. He has gone out somewhere into King's Landing to do some sort of horrible, unspeakable thing, probably. 
uh, and he needs to be retrieved in order to be installed on the throne. And I think initially I was a little confused about why are Otto and Allison working in this way that is so counter to one another? Where I've landed with it, I really want to know your interpretation, is it feels to me like they both know whoever gets to him first gets to sort of set the tone of this thing. Uh, like if Otto gets Aegon first, he can, he can instruct him on why this has to happen and what has to happen and why that has to happen. Allison gets to do the same thing. And the stakes for Allison are, if I get to Aegon first, then maybe, just maybe, I can convince him to rule kindly rather than cruelly. Um, that seemed to be the stakes to me of like who needs to retrieve Aegon before the other. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You just have to, this guy, it doesn't want to be in this position. He's a self-involved jerk, you know, and worse. And, uh, but he is malleable to an, I mean, we see that later, you know, uh, kind of in a scary way when, the, when he starts to really take in the, the roar of the crowd. Um, and so I think the, the, the thinking is, all I have, I mean, the best I can do in this moment is get there first and say my piece, and hopefully that just sticks in. This kid doesn't have like object permanence, you know, <laughs> or not right. object permanence, but like he's just so impressionable that like um, that will be the kind of presiding ethos that if I can just incept it into him, basically. Yeah. Um, so Otto's henchmen for the job are going to be the brothers Cargill, uh, Eric and Eric. Uh, so uh, they now have story involvement and you're going to have to keep track of an Eric and an Eric. Good luck. I wish you well in the wars to come uh, as one of them is going to be pretty clearly like fine with what's going on here. Uh, one of them is like, well, I'm a member of the King's guard. And if Aegon's the King, then that's my job. And the other, and I believe it is Eric uh, is going to be pretty disgusted with what he has seen of Aegon and what he is seeing happening right now. And is going to be, uh, if not decisively team Rhaenyra, then at the very least, team not Aegon. Team, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so their storyline is going to be going around King's Landing and the brothers sort of having a little bit of like a philosophical debate about, is this right? Is any of this okay? Meanwhile, Kristen and Aemond are being sent off uh, that the fate of the Seven Kingdoms depends on them finding Aegon first. And initially, it's just Kristen who is going to be sent off. But Aemond insists that he comes along, that it's not just uh, the, the brothers Cargill who know where Aegon goes at night. As Aegon's brother, Aemond has a couple of ideas of where to look. Well, he thinks he does. And I think it's interesting that Aemond is kind of wrong. You know, yeah. right? I'm, I'm remembering that, right? Like, 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 he goes to the one brothel and the woman's like, he hasn't been here in ages. Like, yeah, he does other things, you yeah. know. And then we see, you know, Eric and Eric, like, at the child fighting pits. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and clearly he's been there because, look, there's this blonde-headed bastard, I think we're supposed to assume. And they're like, well, one of many. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's the, that's the right interpretation is that uh, there's, there's at least one illegitimate child of Aegon's that is in King's Landing that we have eyes on in uh, this series of scenes. Yeah. And I, I think it's an astute observation that they seem to know what Aegon is up to better than uh, Aegon's own family. And that is probably a, you know, a, a pretty important takeaway, right? Of yeah. Like these people can see a little more clearly what's going on with this kid. And it's a, you know, it's crucial to Aemon in particular where it's like, what little we've seen of him or know of him so far is like, he's very competent, you know, he's good with the sword. He's strategic. He's whatever. Um, he doesn't really have the social game, but, you know, whatever, that that, that right. matters less. Um, but, like, he doesn't actually have all of the 
the pieces in front of him. Like he he's not as aware and up on things as he at least when it comes to his brother, which is a problem because his brother's about to be king. Right. Uh so he and Kristen will go to um to this brothel first and like you said, uh this woman is going to say he's not here, hasn't been here in years. His tastes are known to be less discriminating uh is what she says of him. Uh, and then when she sizes up Amond, who has not identified himself, she has this line of how you've grown, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was pretty upsetting. Uh, Amond had come here on his 13th name day is what he says. Uh, I think some some pretty uh, unsavory implications with with Amond. I think that the show has done a decent job, at least at least for me so far. I don't know about for you of like rooting Amond in like this this man like this 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 guy who's going to have one eye on the prize of like i should be on the throne or at the very least we need to be in charge um has really been like molded for this but there's a lot of trauma underneath his life as well uh he's a really interesting character aemon targaryen to me yeah yeah i mean I, I think this this show has done a real i mean game of thrones prime did it too but like this show is cuz it's so steeped in like dynastic you know life and 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 struggle that like most of these people have had, despite their immense privilege, pretty miserable lives, you yeah. know, for one reason or another, or multiple reasons at one. You know, this is a kid who was horribly disfigured in a fight that he kind of started because he was being a jerk. And but all these other things have happened to him. He has his brother who's a monster. He has a, a grandfather who, you know, God knows what. Like, you know, I think Eamon is being sort of pitched not as a villain, but as a something, an antihero, let's say. Yeah. Um, and yet, yeah, we can still extend some empathy to what was sure, assuredly a rough upbringing uh this is this whole series of scenes a lot is kind of like intercutting with with uh with each other a lot of these uh movements of the episode of the hunt for Aegon is happening with all of these uh with with the brothers cargill with uh with aemon and Kristen. but meanwhile at the red keep otto is trying to contain this as best as he can as well He's assembled a bunch of lords and ladies to give them the news about what happened with Viserys and how he had changed his mind. It's not going to be Rhaenyra. It's going to be Aegon. Many of the people in the room bend the knee immediately. Uh, uh, One person wants to leave to consult with his family. And Otto says, you're not allowed to leave without declaring your intention. Uh, This man says, I'm no oath breaker. I will not bend the knee. Um, One other woman, uh, you know, signs on to that statement. And of course, they are immediately escorted out uh, with uh, this one last lord who does finally bend the knee. He says, long live the king. He will be apprehended momentarily. He will be uh, caught trying to leave the castle uh, and he will be hanged for it. Uh, So clearly, he's just trying to hold out a little bit longer so he can get out in time to spread the word. I thought that this whole series of sequences around Otto Hightower and the the reception of the news of Viserys' death and Aegon's ascension and like, what do you do in the immediate face of a rising dictatorship or at least this incredibly um, naked power grab that's happening right now? I thought that this was this was fascinating material. Yeah, I mean, because the situation, not just for the family, but for everyone kind of in their orbit, like uh, it became so dire so fast, you know, I mean, maybe they should have seen it coming and had a plan. But um, I, it also was just like, is the implication that Otto Hightower and his cohort are like having lords and ladies of of like old houses murdered you know because if that's the that's pretty serious right yeah well if they are if they're committing to this to this reality right if they are committing to the reality that Viserys's dying wish was that Aegon sits on the iron throne and he is the king now and if you do not bend the knee to the king 
then you are an oath breaker, then they need to commit all the way, I guess, you know, yeah. full measure. Like they have to they have to treat these people as if they are traitors to the crown. Uh, right. And make examples of them. I mean, have to is, you know, uh, a choice of words. But I think from their perspective, it's like, if we're going to go and do this, we have to do this all the way. Uh, right. So, yeah, I do think that they're rounding these people up. And I suspect that they are not letting them walk away uh, after they're making these decisions. Which, of course, creates enemies in their in their families if they aren't if the families aren't also killed. And then it creates the kind of bureaucratic headache of having to install someone else to rule that house or whatever. And, you know, so like this is already has really far ranging implications. Um, but high auto auto seems like, nope, I know what I'm doing. Like, let's let's keep moving forward. Yeah. Um, one uh, one last bit on on this series of scenes is that um, we are going to see Laris Strong is the one who uh, who comes to Otto Hightower and basically talk about how there are spies within your house and uh, I know who to connect you with. And Otto is going to talk to Laris about, you spent a lot of time with my daughter, haven't you? And Laris will say, there's no reason why the hours I've spent with the queen can't benefit you. So here we're seeing with Laris Strong a little bit of playing all the sides that he can, uh, like a little bit of the complexity to his political maneuvering here as he's seeing different possible advantages to being with a, a couple of different sides of this equation. Right. And what he's moving into, I think, as we see with this foot scene at some point is uh, later is that he is kind of tipping the scales where actually Allison is kind of in, uh, he's in, in, under his control you right. know because he's like he's cozied up to dad allison is in a very precarious position and he's the one laris who holds all of the sort of strings and 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 you know can can sway power and so that's been an interesting dynamic to watch kind of shift over the course of the past you know however many episodes yeah so sticking with allison um we're gonna have a couple of scenes with her there is the scene where she is with Viserys's body as he is wrapped up and taken away. And then she is going to come to Rhaenys, uh, to the queen who never was, who is still in town. She did not leave uh, alongside the rest of her relatives, apparently. So she has had a front row seat to everything that is happening. She's been locked in her chambers. She's just hearing all the pandemonium outside. And when Alicent comes to her, Rhaenys is no dummy, Richard. She figures out pretty quickly... Uh, the king is dead and you're usurping the throne. Right. Uh, so right. this scene between these two uh, women, I thought was uh, was really, really memorable. Yeah. And you can see Rhaenys' wheels turning, you know, I mean, the wheels have already been turning, but like here she's like, OK, now we're fine. Well, I can't believe we're actually here. I kind of mm -hmm. thought this maybe was never going to happen. Um, and I got to figure out what I'm doing without my husband. You know, I've got dead children or at least she thinks two dead children right. and for all intents and purposes. Um, he is dead. Um, you know, and I think it's it, it go, connecting from this scene to the last one is really interesting to think what her thought process is. And like, I don't know that she's necessarily trying to get under Allison's skin for any reason, but to make a point, you know, I don't know if it's strategic necessarily to say to Allison, don't you think, didn't you ever think about it yourself? You know, blah, blah, right. blah. Um, I think she knows that her back is very much up against the wall for now. Um, but still, you know, she's not out of it. She's still she's still on her feet. Well, I think that it's she's in a, a fascinating position where, you know, she I think that she has always seen this pretty clearly. You know, she was saying this to the sea snake for for years and for episodes, certainly. 
where she says, the closer we get to the center of this thing, the the more dangerous it's going to become. You're dragging yeah. our family into the eye of the storm. Um, so and she she has seen this for for many moons now. And she said it to Rhaenyra when Rhaenyra mm-hmm. was a little kid. She yes. said they would rather put the whole thing to the torch than see you ahead of it. And then yeah. at the end of the episode, she has the opportunity to put the royal family to the torch and she doesn't. Right. And, um, so I think she is like, I'm not one of those. I know those guys, they are going to take over, but I'm just, I'm sort of not opting out. I'm just kind of pivoting a little bit. Yeah. So I, I think that she's like, she has this choice in front of her of someone who can see so clearly that she can, you know, she can lean in and not necessarily tip the scales, but she could, I think it would tip the scales to a large degree if she has control over Driftmark and she and the Valerian fleet are now in the pocket of the High Towers. That would be huge for the High Towers who already possess a bunch of dragons, including Vagar uh, and, and so much else. And clearly, literally, they control King's Landing right now. Um, she could lean in and that would be uh, that would be the safe move. But would it be right? You know, would this be at all even remotely OK uh, for for her to do this, and especially when it's something that she has probably had a lot of time to think about this inevitability, uh, as we're outlining that she was talking to Rainier about this, you know, twenty some odd years earlier, almost at this point. Um, so she's in this room, effectively going to give her answer of like thanks, but no thanks. Um, she will give that answer in a much louder way a few scenes from now. But I really appreciated having this having this scene and having this moment between Allison and Rhaenyra uh, or Rhaenys rather uh, and getting this moment for the two of them to kind of size each other up and uh, see each other for who they really are. Um, Otto is going to meet Masseria, the white worm. Uh, he has been clued into the fact that she might know a thing or two about a thing or two, including the fact that Viserys is dead, which is information that should not have reached her at this point. Otto seems, you know, pretty shook by the fact that she knows this. Genuinely, yeah. I think it's the first we've really seen seen him phased in a while, you know? Yeah. Uh, he's like, wait, what is that? And he immediately is like, give her the money. <laughs> give her the money. Yes. Like, give we need cash. to know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like someone who who thinks that they've got, like, uh, their their thumb on the game. Like, this is, this is like if Boston Rob in Redemption Island doesn't know about a thing that's happening, which would be absolutely ridiculous because of all, all the people on Redemption Island were terrible at Survivor and Boston Rob was the master. <laughs> right. And what if all of a sudden Steve Wright was secretly controlling the game? <laughs> uh, he would be freaked out. And so I think here, yeah. Otto's like, wait a second. Somebody knows more than I do or somebody knows something that I thought I had on severe lockdown. And he seems really, really shaken by it. Yeah. Uh, he seems really genuinely, utterly surprised. And I think it does position Missaria as somebody who uh, should not be taken lightly. And yeah. whether or not Otto walks away from this interaction is like, this is a valuable person to have in my corner, or I have to kill that person fast. Right. Uh, you know, that's sort of the question that I think we're left with right now. It's a bit like on Heroes vs. Villains when no one knew who Russell Hance was because they hadn't right. watched yes. his season yet. And yeah. then everyone was like, wait a second, <laughs> this guy keeps doing stuff that I didn't see coming. Um, right. So so just a quick thing about um, how she knew about that when she's lighting the candles in the window. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that was that. That was the signal. Right. That That's how we were supposed to read that. Right. So I think Talia, who was Allison's uh, uh, handmaiden, um, lights the candle. I think that's the signal. Yeah, I think it's yeah, like, okay. and this is like preparedness, right? This is appropriate levels of preparedness for the espionage network here of like, that man's going to die soon. We should probably have some sort of easy call sign so that we could be ahead of the game once that goes down. Right. 
so yeah, I think that that is uh, that's how I took that as well. So she's going to give the location of Aegon because she knows everything, uh, and she's trading this not just for money, but also she wants Otto's word that basically like child fight club stops uh like the treatment of children in flea bottom it's been obscene and horrible and either you're tolerating it or it's gone completely ignored i want you to address it that's sort of her terms otto promises to look into it it's interesting that she has like politics yeah you know i kind of assumed that she was just like doing everything for her own self-interest but like no she like actually has issues that she cares about when we when we saw her back in, I think it was episode two on Dragonstone with Damon, she has, you know, that big speech with him of like, I, I came to you to be liberated from fear, you right. know, um, like I didn't I didn't want to be treated the way that I was treated my entire life anymore. I think that she has that energy has followed her into this position of power that she has um, found herself in, uh, where I do think authentically, at least I buy that she wants better for the people of the world. Uh, yeah. And that if she is in this, you know, position to, to wield information sharply, that that's the, those are the, 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 the angles that she's going for. That's what she wants to cover. That's what she wants to fix. Um, whether or not, you know, she's aligning herself with the right person. I feel like, especially through this episode, we know enough about Otto Hightower that I don't think that that's really something that he gives any kind of care about. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. But look on Game of Thrones original, we saw when one woman gains the favor of a bunch of very downtrodden people, like how powerful that can be. Yes. Uh, in, in Daenerys, obviously, with Misa, um, you know, uh, so I don't know. I think we should definitely keep our eyes on her in a way that I didn't think we needed to before. Like, yeah, because we spent so much time with the townsfolk in this episode. And here we have someone who is advocating for the most downtrodden of those people uh, as a huge power shift happens. Like, She's that's that's a really interesting dynamic to have now introduced into the show. She's kind of um, for the show at this moment in time, the voice of the people. Right. Like, I right. think that she's sort of representing that contingent that has gone unrepresented on the show in, in many regards. So absolutely. Somebody to keep uh, keep on our radar for sure. Um, we get to this final uh, this final clash of swords over who gets to Aegon. Uh, Eric and Eric find him first. But Kristen and Eamon have been following them. And so, you know, a little bit of like, okay, we need to... It's been a while since we've had some sword play on the show. So we just have to have a little bit of a quick skirmish here uh, to to wrap this story up. Yeah, I was glad that the quick skirmish didn't end in blood, you know, bloodshed. That was a relief. Uh, Although, like, if you could just get rid of one of Eric and Eric, it would be a little easier to follow, maybe? Well, sure. But I don't know. I I really liked them in this episode. They had a nice energy to them. You know, uh, they seemed decent. Okay, I was... I was curious because I, I I think like they kind of come out of nowhere and they they do have a really important role to play in in this episode of not just like trying to find Aegon but having you know sort of representing like the Thanksgiving dinner table of like you and your uncle who wildly disagree about the state of the world uh, and what should be done about it and how you don't want to have that conversation but when you do have that conversation it's going to be hard for it to not be kind of explosive. It feels like Eric and Eric sort of represent that energy in their conflicting opinions about Aegon. Um, and I, I really liked seeing that because I like the, the story of these characters, I think, is, is, a, is an interesting one. But I was, I was curious to know how it would read for like, this is sort of them coming into the story yeah. at this really important moment, almost completely out of nowhere. Maybe they could have been introduced a little bit more, you know, in past episodes, just so we could 
really be able to follow this most, you know, most clear, clearly. But um, yeah, they're an interesting energy. I, I think that part of it and why I keep going back back to like this King's Landing citizens, too, is that so much of this season has been so cloistered in just this small group of people that it's nice in this episode that we zoom out a little bit to see the Cargills and then a lot to see the the people of King's Landing to be like, right, there are a lot of other people in this and affected by it and who aren't just totally cowering in fear the whole time. Like they, they actually act, they make choices, they defend themselves, etc. Yeah. So Kristen and Amond are going to win out over Eric and Eric. And we, we see them grab Aegon. They bring Aegon back home. And Otto and Alicent are going to do the, the post-mortem on all of this. They're going to recap the day. Uh, and uh, Otto says, wow, well done. A charming contest. Uh, and I feel like this is, this is a real gloves-off scene between father and, and daughter at this moment in time. Where Otto's saying, "Listen, we've you know we've depended on each other, and now like everything is for the good of the family. I don't know why our differences should divide us uh, so clearly." Allison, in this moment, I think feels emboldened to be like, "I've never been really your daughter. I've just been a pawn on the board for you to move around." Uh, and Otto doesn't say no to that. Otto's like, "Well, if that's true, then I made you queen of the Seven Kingdoms. Isn't that a pretty good deal?" Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's a little bit like proud of her by the end of the scene, but also like not threatened by her. You know, what does he say at the very end? Like, as you wish. Yeah. And it's a little sarcastic and it's a little. Yeah. Like, you look so it. much like your mother in certain lights. Yeah. Is what yeah. he'll say to her, which feels very patronizing, if not a little darker than patronizing. Yeah. I think he's just like, uh, I think he'll work to make sure she doesn't get killed. But I think he's also not that like. She has fulfilled her purpose. You know, now right. we're on to the next. Now we're on to the boy. And I think that like a lot of this episode is and why there was that crucial scene between Alicent and Rainus is Alicent really finally realizing like I didn't matter to them except as, you know, this vessel to birth children and right. to marry this guy. That was it. Right. Whatever power she has is about to become irrelevant. Right. Um, and I think for for Alicent getting to Aegon first for her was critical if she's to maintain any semblance of uh, of control in this situation. And I think for Otto, it would have been preferable to get to Aegon. But I think he's like, that's not the end of the game for me that you got him first. Uh, like the stakes of that situation were very different for Allison and, and Otto. And I think that you get that from Otto's energy in this room versus Allison's. Um, I think Allison leaves this room having had a very exhausting conversation, a, conf a confrontational uh, conversation with her father, uh, you know, the kind of thing where your blood is going to boil as you are facing down this person who literally gave you life and giving them the business only for that person to kind of be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Cute. Yeah. It's horrible. You know? yeah, it is. Yeah. It's so diminishing. Yeah. 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 Uh, so she walks away with that. And then we get to Alicent and Lord Laris. Uh, and we get into Quentin Tarantino's favorite scene of the night. Uh, as right. Alicent is going to... She's going to like put her feet on the table. And at first, it kind of felt like a power move to me of like, Laris, yeah. you can't quite do this. I... And, I yeah I, yeah, I read it that way, but I also thought for a sec, well, because I, I started the scene being nervous when she poured herself a drink. I was like, oh, no, she's going to get poisoned because like I'm in paranoia mode for her. Right, of course. But then she takes her feet and then she put the shoes off and puts her feet up. And I was like, oh, this is kind of sweet. Like she kind of feels comfortable, you know, 
Like, oh, that's nice. And then you very quickly are like, oh, no, that's not what this is about. No. Uh, and uh, I do not recall any such material in Fire and Blood. Uh, I think that the the historians did not uh, chronicle Laris Strong, a.k.a. Laris Clubfoot's foot fetish. Uh, but apparently he has one because he uh, he's he's masturbating to the site of Allison's feet on the yeah. table. And um, this is not the first time this has happened. Clearly. Game, game of Thrones is Game of thrones very hard in this moment. And I don't know. I don't know that I needed this. Uh, this no. feels... I don't, I don't know what it's adding thematically, honestly. I think like it's it's pretty reductive uh, of like, here's like the, the gross schemer. And also like the fact that there's like the foot fixation feels, I don't know, kind of wildly insensitive to people with uh, with his condition. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I didn't love it. I think this is this is pretty easily my least favorite part of the episode. And it's not because I'm like squeamish and prude. You can throw a lot of really weird, wacky material my way and I'll I'll enjoy it if it's thematic and if it serves a purpose. This kind of for me felt like, well, we need to have like one really gross thing in the episode. And so let's let's give it here. And I, I think it's pretty diminishing uh, of Laris as a character and not not so great for, uh, you know, uh, for for the way that Allison is being handled as a character either. I just didn't love it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you already have the slight, you know, difficulty of having a character with a disability also being a sneaky villain, which is not not saying that can't happen. Right. But you have to treat that you know with texture you know and and interestingly and 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 thoughtfully um i think they mostly done that but then this scene it's like yeah making the one to one comparison between his disability and his sexual interest like that's not great but also i think that we've just gotten a couple of scenes where alicent has realized she doesn't have power why do we need this extra kind of debasement you know it's like she has to do this thing so this guy can sit there to what keep him in her favor like you know it, 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 right. like, it just felt a little gratuitous not for the sexual aspect but for the like to kind of further pushing allison down like we get it we we, we just had the scene that def- that defined that you know yeah i i totally agree and i i think like that seems to be how i read the scene as far as like what's the purpose of it it feels like allison's like this is my way of keeping laris close to me uh and like they're not just like better way of finding Laris's kryptonite you know uh like this is his kryptonite it's just a a a strange choice for me and i i think a bad choice ultimately uh i I don't know how this turns into something interesting i think it just is you know kind of in the pantheon of like gratuitous game of thronesness uh yeah and i i didn't need it i thought this was this we were we were in like very cerebral interesting philosophical territory and then Laris uh, does the business to the feet. And if it's they just, wanted, to, if they wanted to twist it some and have it be that Allison likes this, and because we don't really know much about Allison's like sexual right. life, that would be interesting. But the fact that she turns away and it's sort of this gross thing she has to endure, this Louis C.K. kind of thing, yeah. like, ugh, like I, I don't know. I just feel like this show has been better than original Game of Thrones with giving women agency while also still being like women are in a very precarious position in this world. Um, which as they are in the in our world uh often uh that like i don't yeah we didn't need this extra added sort of thing in, unless they were going to do something more interesting with, with with it which they so far have not so we are going to uh go from that to uh you know a bit of a montage of everybody sort of waiting for the next day aegon has been secured 
unhappily. He does not like that he has been secured. He does not like that this is the position he is being thrust in. Uh, Amond also does not like this. There was a scene earlier that we kind of yada yada through, but talked about lightly where, where Amond is going to have this moment with Kristen where he's like, if I was on the throne, this wouldn't be a problem. Uh, and maybe we want to find Aegon in a bad situation so that we can just yada yada our way through Aegon as well. Uh, and it seems like Kristen is like quasi interested in that, but also is still clinging to whatever like illusion of loyalty he has and honor that he has. Um, but that conversation existing that Aemon thinks that he's the one of the two of his brothers uh, that is best suited to, to sit on the Iron Throne so on the eve of Aegon's ascension, I think that Aemond is still having uh, daydreams of uh, who should really be the ruler of this realm. Yeah, and probably thinking through some different pathways to that. You yeah. know, like obviously the best one is wait it out with King Aegon and maybe strike against him subtly or hope that he, I don't know, gets syphilis and dies or something. Right. You know, and then you ascend. Or dangling on the other side in the distance is like maybe i switched alliances at somehow and and somehow maneuver that um which you know I, i'm sure that this character as much as we understand this character has not entirely ruled out no uh so that's what's going on in the night before uh and then really uh interestingly on the eve of aegon's ascension is eric cargill being like enough no, this is not going to stand and I'm going to do something about it. And he is going to break Rainey's free from her, uh, from her, from her, you know, essentially from her prison uh, and say, I'm not going to let this treachery stand. Let's get out of here. Uh, and so they're going to wind and weave their way out of the city uh, and into the next day. This is where we get this, um, this really fascinating series of scenes where the bells are ringing out. Uh, signaling the death of Viserys, signaling this change in um, in uh, in leadership here in King's Landing, and now we're kind of rooted in Rhaenys' perspective of the people of the streets, kind of in a panic. Uh, she gets separated from Eric, uh, and she is going to wind and weave her way towards the Dragon Pit. Um, in in considering this on the other side of seeing where all of this goes, Richard, I do think it's. It's really interesting that she starts off kind of as like a, a, a point of view of the people in the streets, considering like she will not consider them at all when she just bursts free no. on Dragonback. I think the most interesting part of this whole episode, and I would I'm really curious to hear what you think it was, was what is that smile that she what, is it when she realizes, oh, we're being herded toward where they keep the dragons? You know, because she looks up kind of through the crowd and sees the sky in a building. Is that what is that what that smile is about where she's like, ah. I'm being led toward sort of my 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 way out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, a ship out of King's Landing would have been nice if that was the only option available to her. But if she is being literally corralled to the place where she knows that her dragon is parked, uh, that she's got the keys to that specific ride, that she is going to be able to make uh, quite an entrance during the coronation and certainly quite the exit. Um, so I think that there is a piece of that, but I think that there's also probably some degree to which, you know, she's kind of like an anti Arya in this moment, I think, uh, or at least like a, a really interesting comparison to Arya when you think about this episode in relation to, to Baylor uh, of Game of Thrones season one, where Arya is sort of our eyes from the perspective of the audience to the execution of her father of Ned Stark, and she doesn't know what's going on. 
even if we kind of begin to process what is going on. And in this case, I think Rainus, like she knows what's going on. She is being like shepherded into the audience for this coronation. And unlike Arya, she can see every last bit of it for what it is. And unlike Arya, who would have loved nothing more than to be able to cross out some names on her list immediately in that moment, Rainus has the opportunity to do exactly that. And she can make the choice as to whether or not she's going to cross any names out. Yes, totally. I, 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 I think I'm, I'm also choosing to read the smile a little bit as an indication of something we've kind of, you know, in, in, intangibly talked about is like that, that way out. The, these people stuck in this stressful, paranoid, cloistered life. Here's Rainus just in a crowd, looking at the sky, looking at the city. And for a second, she's kind of free. You know, she's so anonymous, like she she's able to slip away later in the crowd and, and go get on the dragon and, and then join, you know, gets right back into the thick of things. But like, right. For a second there. It's like the end of Castaway where she could she could go any which way. And I think I don't know, I think the street, the smile is mostly because she realizes, ah, I figured it out. But also uh, she's kind of enjoying herself. Yeah, a little bit. I think also like I can't believe this. Like I think it's a little bit of like a almost like an exasperated smile. Of, like they're really doing it. You're kidding me. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- this you is know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you're you're doing it in the dragon pit, you idiots. Like I think is is definitely another piece of it. Um, Aegon and Allison are on their way towards the coronation. Uh, she's going to tell them have the decency at least to look grateful. In an hour, you're going to be the king. And Aegon uh, is going to be talking about how my father never wanted this for me. He could have changed his mind at any point. He never did. He didn't like me. Um, And Allison is going to continue to repeat this line that she does seem to believe of. He he wanted you to take the throne with his final breath. That's what he wanted. And she even presents him with the Valyrian dagger. Uh, And he says, do not toy with me, mother. And I, I think... To to me, I would expect that Aegon understands that this dagger was very important to his father, was greatly associated with Viserys uh, and uh, the, the Targaryen dynasty. But I think it is interesting to me, Richard, that no one really is around to explain to him what it actually means. Uh, like right. none of that history, none of the culture around it exists on this side of the Targaryen family tree. Right. And so when will he be clued into that? Because... No one in his inner circle or the people who were kind of pulling his strings, they're not privy to that. You know, that's on right. the other side. Um, and, you know, obviously we know it's going to come to bear much, much later for, for this, this world. But for now, yeah, it's funny to see this hugely important, like, talisman reduced to just like, no, it's your dad's nice thing that he had. Now, now it's yours, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this seems to be the thing that, um, that revs him up. Uh, that kind of uh, sobers him up and gets him ready for the moment uh, where we're kind of in his perspective as the coronation is occurring. There's the big announcement uh, of Viserys the Peaceful is dead. Uh, by the way, like we're, we're honoring like the death of the Peaceful King. Like we're already honoring him that way and like titling him as such. Feels like Otto being like, yeah, and the next king is going to be like the Warful. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and it's we, a little we know where bit... This is going. It's like, you know, we won't speak ill of the dead. Like, he was kind of an effectual diss. But, like, now we get to reframe that in, in death as peaceful. Right. You know, yeah. like, now... Viserys we, the nothing burger doesn't quite have the same right. ring to exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Viserys yeah. the cucked or whatever. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. But yeah. um, I did, just going really quickly back to the carriage scene, I did like the way it ended, where he's like, do you love me? And she calls him an imbecile. 
Right. Um, and she, she doesn't answer the question. And so you go into this next scene being like, all right, how does Allison feel about this kid? Obviously, she knows he does terrible things, whatever, but she's still his mom. And I think you see an interesting shift as this process goes on. Uh, and as the crowd is kind of trying to figure out how to react to it, where like Allison does, I think, by the end, get towards something like pride. Yeah. And I think that I think that Aegon receives that as such, you know, all of the people on stage bow their heads to him and all the people who are people that he either looked up to or feared or like had to respect, but secretly loathed all of them are bowing their heads to him. And I think that he's, you know, I don't know if he's taking this as like, I'm like, I'm King shit now. And like, this is, this is me and I earned this. Or if it's, I have the crown and they have to do this. And that's a, that's a tool that I can use. But but either way, I think sort of in, in, in the same vein as when Aemond was so exhilarated on the other side of claiming Vagar, that energy is here with, with Aegon. I think that he is finally swept up in it. He has uh, Aegon the Conqueror's crown. He has Aegon the Conqueror's sword, Blackfire. He you know, feels very much a Targaryen king in this mm-hmm. moment. And I think it's it's so interesting to me to see that transformation of this kid who, much like Jon Snow, I don't want it, uh, suddenly has it, now maybe wants it, mm-hmm. and immediately in that moment is confronted with potential imminent dragonfire doom right. as Rhaenys, who has escaped in the crowd, has gone depth into the depths of the dragon pit, uh, has her has her dragon, uh, uh, Malus, I believe, is the name of her her dragon, uh, Malus, maybe. Um, she bursts forward with it and has the opportunity to just incinerate these fools. Yeah, and Alicent closes her eyes and she's like, "Well, this is it." And there's a tiny part of you that's like, "Is she like finally?" You know, like like totally. Let's just totally. avoid all this and just come it's on. Kind of like, it, oh, this is this is a mercy. Make, you know, make like, it just quick. Get it done. You know, yeah. like Lena did it. Like, you know, okay, let's go for it. Um, but, you know, I think it's also funny with the Aegon of it all. Like, I was thinking about, um, sometimes I do, like, um, onstage Q&As for, like, post screenings. Or yeah. anytime I have to do a public speaking thing, I get really nervous. And I, like, sure. the hours before, I'm like, why did I agree to do this? It's so oh, stupid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Relatable. And then the minute that mic turns on and, and the lights are on, I, the theater kid in me from high school and college just comes roaring out. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. just like, I never want to leave the stage. And I, you kind of see that with Aegon where it's like, wait a second, this feels amazing. Yes. <laughs> you know, all of this attention. And um, I saw, and I think that's a really interesting uh, and very credible character, le- you know, evolution that happens in a second that then is, of course, yes, like immediately challenged by this thing where, uh, you know, it's almost all over. And then Rainus makes a really interesting decision that, I mean, we've kind of already talked about, but like, that is something that I kind of thought, okay, we're at the penultimate episode, penultimate episodes of this, these shows tend to be the big violent ones where something major happens, not always, but a lot of the time. And this show pulled its punch, which I thought was actually more interesting because I was expecting a bloodbath and or a fire bath or whatever. And uh, that's not what happened. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I, I, I thought about this a lot with how the show handles Viserys's exit from the stage versus Ned Stark's exit from the stage in Game of Thrones as being sort of like, um, like. A, a very different path towards the same inevitable outcome of your number one on the call sheet leaving prematurely, you know, coming into House of the Dragon. We've seen so much Game of Thrones that it's really expected that Patty Constantine is not going to be on the show forever. And in fact, this show can't really become what it's supposed to become, this war of succession 
if he's still around. So you know he's gonna he's gonna live, uh, uh, or you know he's gonna die eventually. But you have no real sense that like he's going to live as long as he did. You know, he lived a lot longer than I think a lot of the the non book reading prognosticators would have guessed. Uh, and his death ends up being you know this inevitability, but extended. And I think in this moment. The Game of Thrones trope has you uh, ready to believe, okay, maybe Rhaenys is going to incinerate all of the high towers. We've been invested in the high towers, like getting themselves into the position of power to, to claim the throne once Viserys is gone. But what happens if Rhaenys just torches them all, then walks on stage, picks up the crown, and this is Rhaenyra's new opponent? Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of like the like sort of like the galaxy brained Game of Thrones thinking that's going on in that moment of watching this go down. And instead, it's this other choice of, no, we will resist the Game of Thrones trope of wiping out a family in a penultimate episode. And that will be interesting because that this moment for this family where they uh, very easily could have just been in one fell swoop, completely wiped from the table. You got to imagine they're not going to forget what this feels like. And you're, you have to imagine that this really is going to crystallize for them what they are actually up against potentially yeah. and what they're going to need to do in response to somebody who had so much power over us in this particular moment. And yet now we almost owe something to, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that it's a shrewd thing on Rainus's part because she has not technically declared a side. I mean, she's declared that she's against <laughs> the common folk who were yes. in that building, but, but in terms of the people who matter, She's like, right. I didn't kill you. I, do, I was just leaving. You guys weren't letting me leave. I am an autonomous person. I decided to go when I wanted to go. You yeah. decided to have it in the parking garage. Uh, so I got my, <laughs> my whip and I left. Mm -hmm. um, so she hasn't said, she didn't fly away yelling, I'm team Rhaenyra. She didn't do that. So right. I, I, think, I think it's an interesting, I mean, obviously she has more to align with Rhaenyra about because of, you know, blood and, and uh, relatives and all that. But, but um, you know, the grandkids and whatnot. But uh yeah you know like I, she hasn't declared a side yet which i think was ultimately her strategy and i think probably a, a good one so that's where we where we leave it with this big sort of explosive moment that uh kills a bunch of npcs but none of the playable characters uh so uh Rainey's is on dragon back flying off to to who knows where and it leaves us on the doorstep of the season one finale we did not see Rhaenyra Targaryen or her side of the family in this entire episode completely withheld from us throughout uh, the Green Council. Next week's episode, entitled The Black Queen, uh, I think uh, fair to say <laughs> that we are going to get the answer uh, to how Rhaenyra yeah. is going to feel about all of this. Is it better to be part of a Green Council or be the Black Queen? You know, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I I was going to say I'd rather just be one of the common folk, but uh, I want to be know. the I mean, hopefully she's, you know, everyone's unionized. But it, it, the, the brothel owners seem to be kind of, you know, she's like, I have a little I have a, I have a, a thriving business and uh, mm -hmm. I can kind of talk sassy to royalty because like, whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. she seemed to be doing OK as long as she's treating her employees well. Um, but, yeah, uh, sometimes I really yeah. understand why the sea snake just keeps going back to the stepstones. It's like, get me out of this. Oh, fully. You know? I, you know, I'm an, I want to be like in a library in Old Town. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. far away from all this. Uh, yeah, I think that that's fair. I think that's fair. We've got some feedback from the still watching faithful here, uh, Richard, to bring into the conversation. Um, now, uh, this came our way from, from Tim, uh, Tim K, who had written in. Uh, and said, much was made of the value of Vagar to the Greens, but in a post-show featurette, 
It was frequently mentioned how as dragons age, they eventually get to a point where they are essentially too big to support their own bodies. So I wonder how much longer Vagar will be in fighting shape and how much value she is to Aemond as he is still pretty young. I think Tim is sort of sizing up the battlefield here as the lines have clearly been drawn. I do think maybe that speaks to why like Aemon's first move after Rhaenys leaves isn't to just go downstairs and rev up like the monster truck that is Vagar. Like she's in a Corvette and she's, you know, speeding off. I don't think he's going to really, even on the biggest dragon in the land, going to be able to catch up to her so quick. Right. It's the Mario Kart thing of I always choose small and fast. Yes. cars and but other people like the bigger slower ones you know so yeah well I've, I'm, I'm inclined to play as wario whenever given the option see so. okay so my boyfriend is the same way where i'm like give me peach give me yoshi mm-hmm. i want i want the, the agility yeah i just like to go wow you know <laughs> yeah, as fair as much as I, wah, 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 <laughs> as much as i can uh, as i'm playing uh mario kart uh this came from Kristen, uh who uh no surprise had a lot to say about Kristen uh on the show uh, and Kristen wondered, um, uh, had, had some questions about uh, the switch of sworn protector Sir Kristen Cole from Rhaenyra to the Queen, just because he's all hurt because the princess doesn't want to run off with him, and he ultimately was going to take his own life, only to have the Queen find him and stop him. How does his job just change from the princess to the Queen, and how come no one said anything to explain it? Um, well, all of this is you know sort of just like hand-waved away in that time jump, Richard, but did this episode give you any clarity as far as Kristen Cole's, like, real authentic feelings about um his place in this society his place in this particular situation is this just a revenge kick against Rhaenyra for him or did you catch anything in terms of how he's feeling about Allison after after all of this you have to imagine she played a humongous role in him not only getting to keep his job but you know potentially getting to keep his life after what happened at the wedding well, I think there's some, some instructive stuff in this episode where he says to Aemond when, when they're at the brothel door where he's like, don't talk about women like that, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, I think Kristen is in his mind trying to restore the honor that he besmirched by sleeping with Rhaenyra that one time. Um, and so I think that's part of it. But I think really Kristen is emerging or has emerged as uh, just a bad guy who like, you know, uh, kind of punishes women for w- what he th- or or sort of puts women at a, at a sort of remove because of his sort of internal conflicts about women. And like, I, you know, and I think that like, he probably now thinks that he's in love with Allison to some degree because he just, that's how his kind of mind thinks. He can't really see women as peers. They're sort of objects of either protection or lust or both or whatever. And so, yeah, I think he's just like a toxic man. That's what I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, Kristen wasn't a huge fan. Uh, Kristen, the feedbacker, wasn't a huge fan of the actor change for Rhaenyra and Alicent. Uh, we got feedback that was similar from Maya as well. But this is from a few weeks back. I, I would be curious to know if Kristen and Maya and anyone else who hasn't been feeling the actor change for Rhaenyra and for Alicent, uh, the, the Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook era, if they're feeling differently now. Obviously, nothing new from Emma Darcy in this episode other than their uh, strong advocation offline for Negronis. Um, but a really strong episode from Olivia Cook once again, I thought. Oh, incredible. Yeah, she's yeah. really great. Uh, I think uh, this version of Allison, uh, there's just a lot of layers here. A lot of layers. Uh, Christina had written in and said, between Ned Stark, Oberyn Martell, and now Harwin Strong, does anyone notice how good dads don't live long in Westeros? 
Notably absent from that list, Richard, uh, would be King Viserys. Uh, I think this feedback sent in shortly before his death, or at least before HBO confirmed it with their trailer. Um, yeah, I don't know what this is. Do the bad dads tend to live relatively long lives? I think dads in general are in trouble. <laughs> but, people in general yeah, are real in danger general. in this world. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of occasionally oppressive things about watching these two shows is that like, you're just starved for any glimmer of like decency or warmth or, you know, kindness or whatever. You get it in little fits and starts, but then it's usually ruined like a scene later. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking yeah. about young Lenor and young Rhaenyra on the beach and they're like, oh, that's nice. And then you're like, but that's not going to last, you know? And I think yeah. that, yeah, any kind of like kind parenting that is reciprocated, like that's, that's not going to be short lived just because that's not the world of the story. Um, a couple more. This was from Bridget, who said, I know it's not part of the Game of Thrones universe playbook, uh, though I heard that it was a Benioff and Dan Weiss thing. But I think that flashbacks would have worked fine if we needed to cover several decades quickly in this first season. Uh, so I think Bridget out here advocating for for flashbacks, which I think is interesting right now in like the week following Patty Considine's officially e official exit from the series, he's done a few interviews, Richard, where he's made it clear that even though he loved this role, it's his favorite role he's gotten to play, he wouldn't be particularly interested in a reprise of any uh, kind. And I know that there's a lot of people, including myself, who would really love to see um, Emily Carey and Millie Alcock back on the show at some point in time. Sounds like Patty Constantine wouldn't want to, uh, to, to join them in any kind of future flashback scene. I would be here for it, but I am also here for him living his best life. And if this is his best life, then stay away from the dragons. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think that flashbacks, if I, I think that they they made ultimately made the right choice by by presenting it to us linearly. You know, I, I do actually, in hindsight, like that. Um, I think flashbacks could get a bit gimmicky or distracting if they were because they would have to be used a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, but going forward, if we did want to see those younger actors again, who were really great, I think there would be a moment, perhaps next season or something, of real poignancy where you start the episode or whatever, you end the episode or maybe bookend the episode with a memory of a sweeter, nicer time between these two women, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think you could do that for an emotional button, but um, I think in terms of trying to get us to know these characters as we have over the course of this season, I think they ultimately did choose the right approach, even though the time jumps have been at times a little, um, you know, jarring. Yeah. Um, this from Amanda, uh, also Angelica, a few people who had written in uh, just to, to clear the record on why the Valerians are able to ride dragons. It would be due to Rhaenys' Targaryen blood flowing through their veins. I thought this was relevant to bring up now as we are really and I, I was really excited for the moment that we would see Rhaenys on dragon back at some point in time. Uh, I think if anyone was really looking forward to that, this episode very much delivered on what mm -hmm. that might look like. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Michelle gave a lot of love for the podcast. Big fan of the podcast. And she made a direct plea, uh, Richard, to get you on a Brant Steel podcast over on RHAP or Post Show Recaps. And I cannot imagine you know what a Brant Steel is, Richard, but it is as you are uh, revealing your survivor fandom to me. Uh, becoming a personal mission of mine uh, to to make Michelle's dreams come true. So we'll talk offline. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, to be perfectly honest, Brant Steele sounds like a particular kind of adult performer. But um, uh, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, there's a way of looking at it where uh, <laughs> that might actually not be terribly yeah, yeah. far off. Uh, uh, but, but yes, I've appreciated. I, I... Uh, yeah, I've appreciated the still watching podcast kind of becoming um, 
my night's watch of uh, Survivor podcasting. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I took the black, and here I am talking about Survivor still. Uh, so I think that's going to do it. Unless you've got anything else on House of the Dragon this week, Richard. Only one episode left is yeah. kind of wild to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I know we've we've gone long, but that's because we, you know, I'm glad we got to those emails. Big episode, um, yeah. And please do still keep emailing us, everyone. Um, I was saying to a friend the other day, who said it in kind, he said it in kind of a semi like you know mock like ashamed way. He was like, I kind of love the show, and I, I think I, I, mean, I agreed with him. I, I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning, but I'm really invested now, and I think that's not just because we've committed all this time to it, but also just because I think they've done really good things the performances have been great the writing has been shrewd and like you know we said about this episode i'm, I'm genuinely surprised by it more and more yeah um i think that we you know a lot of a lot of the work to get us to the place that we are at heading into episode nine and now certainly heading out of it um i i think that you know the time jumpiness and sort of these these sort of contrary arguments across the the, the discourse of the season thus far of it's moving too fast and yet it's moving too slow. I think I'm in this place of, uh, I think they Goldilocks did. I think it was just right. And I do think that I am feeling pretty ready for what's coming next, but I feel especially prepared for it because of all of the time that we've gotten to spend with Allison, with Rhaenyra, with the people around them. And, um, I am in, in hindsight, uh, really grateful for that family dinner they had one week earlier. Yeah. Seems like it's going to be a minute before, uh, we get another family dinner for the full assembled Targaryen, uh, family. Um, but we'll find out. We'll see what it looks like for Rhaenyra and her family next week in the season finale of House of the Dragon, the Black Queen coming one week from now. If you want to get your feedback in for that episode, we would love to hear it. Still watching pod at gmail.com. That's still watching pod at gmail.com. Richard, where can folks find you? Anything you want to plug going on here on Vanity Fair? Uh, as ever, Twitter at Rylaws on VF.com. Also, we should mention a programming note. We do not uh, have a screener for the last episode. So this still watching episode will be airing uh, you know, sometime midday Monday, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. So we will be a little later on the podcast than uh, normal. We uh, uh, appreciate your patience as we watch this episode, just like the rest of you. We are uh, now in the common folk uh, with the common folk of the dragon pit, Richard, just waiting for a dragon to explode. <laughs> yeah. us. Uh, so, gosh, that was phrased horribly. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Round Howard. Uh, you can find me at Round Howard wherever you can find me on the Internet. Uh, including right here, VF.com, where I am recapping House of the Dragon, also writing some breakouts, including some Easter eggs from this episode. I have an article up on VF.com right now that's uh, delineating some of the ways that this episode was really different from how um, all of this went down in the book. I thought it was pretty fascinating, some of the choices that they chose to make. So if that's interesting to you, check it out, VF.com. Of course, huge thanks to the dragon that breaks through the dragon pit every week and makes this podcast possible. The great Dave Gonzalez, we appreciate you for everything that is uh, being done to make still watching happening uh, and still watching will continue to happen next week when we return for the season finale of house of the dragon until then, everybody take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the 
Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakopli, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. 